Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have one of my favorite human beings on planet Earth or any other planet for that matter. Um, the one and only Sharla Frost. Um, she says she's a recovering trial attorney and I, <laughs> you'll love her sense of humor. So um, do me a favor, as always, share this out, please, and make sure that um, we get a bunch of people on here to watch Sharla and listen to her story. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Sharla Frost. And we are back. I see Jose and Nick and Katia. And I'm now going to bring the one and only Sharla on. Sharla, welcome to the show. Good, good morning, Ken. Good morning. It's good to have you here. Um, Thank you for having me. We have Dennis from China joining us, by the way. He's going to bed. <laughs> he can watch this when he wakes up that's yeah. right so charlotte thank you for um agreeing to come on and be my next victim i mean my next guest on the show i'm kidding i'm so grateful to number one know you and have you in my life and be able to call you a friend i'm also very excited to hear your entire story because i know it's a great story um, so let's start by you telling everybody where you were born and raised. Well, I like to tell people, je suis né à Paris, because I was born in Paris, Texas, uh, and I was raised on a cattle ranch in Frogville, Oklahoma. So I'm a fourth generation Frogvillian on one side of the family and a fifth generation on the other. That's so awesome. Fro what Frogvillian? Yeah. Yeah. Is that yes, a word? My, my people have been in, well, I, it, it is if I made it up. <laughs> uh, but my family has lived in that area for a very long time. It was Indian Territory when they first moved there. And um, then Oklahoma statehood was in 1907. And the family had been there for quite, quite a while at that point. We are not Native American. We, we thought we were. But according to Ancestry.com and the DNA, I couldn't be any whiter if I was see-through. So apparently we are not Native American, but um, the family's been there for a really long time. Oh my goodness. So, so what was it like? So for you, you, cause you grew up there in, in Frogville for the most part, right? I did. How, how yeah. long were you in Paris? Uh, probably about a week and a half because oh. I was born at the old hospital, which will make sense to the people who live around Paris. But okay. uh, my parents lived in Hugo at the time, okay. which is the county seat of Choctaw County, which is where Frogville is located. It has the distinction of being the 
poorest uh, county in the state of Oklahoma, uh, going back apparently to the time that my relatives showed up there in the late 1800s. But uh, the family has been here for a long, long, long time. Isn't that where the casinos are? It is. The casinos have been life-changing. That has made a tremendous difference locally. The Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma is the largest employer in the area and is responsible for some just tremendous improvements locally over the last 15 to 20 years. Big difference from when I was growing up. And it's still the poorest county in Oklahoma? Still the poorest county in Oklahoma. We're, we're working on that. I, I am on the Oklahoma Southeast Board, which is a sort of community chamber of commerce. Okay. And I'm working with a couple of other economic development groups. And we'll see. Uh, there, there are some nibbles that looks like we might get some actual development in this part of the world. But we have great people and wonderful resources. So if anyone's looking for a place they'd like to do business, Choctaw County's open. We'd love to have you. <laughs> so, so what was it like for you growing up? Cause I know, you know, we will get into, um, your career, your chosen career path, um, in a little bit, but I, I, I find it interesting cause you're, you're by all intents and purposes, you're a country girl, <laughs> like you're a yeah. farm girl, really. That a ranch girl. We didn't ranch, actually farm ranch. much. Ranch. We did. We did cattle ranch. We were right. 13 miles from a loaf of bread. I mean, we lived a long way out in the in the country, but it was in some ways sort of idyllic because a quarter of a mile down the road, our next neighbor was my aunt and uncle. A quarter of a mile down the road from that was my grandparents. Wow. So, plenty of family around, yeah. and that doesn't happen a lot these days. No, it doesn't. So growing up as a, as a a little kid, did you have, you have siblings? I have one sister and tons of cousins. Okay. I have a sister who's four years younger than I am. Okay. So what was it like for you though, growing up out in, I mean, cause I've been up there. I know it's literally the middle of nowheresville. Well, it, it, it is, but that's all you know as a child. And right. that, that was normal for me. And uh, it was quiet, and we didn't have a lot of concerns or restrictions. The world wasn't as scary as it is now. Sure. Uh, I went to the same school that my dad went to and his siblings went to and had a lot of the same teachers uh, wow. and went to school with the, the children of the children he went to school with. So in some ways, it's a very insular type of upbringing, but it's a good upbringing. You you don't have to worry about some of the things that kids in big cities worry about, even even back when I was younger. Sure. So uh, did you play soccer? (laughs) Oh, God, no. I had no athletic ability. Let's make that (laughs) perfectly clear. You know, I was not the, the popular kid in school because everyone who was had was an athlete. We had a, an amazing basketball program and I can't dribble a basketball, never could. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I could ride horses. Uh, that's my athletic accomplishment. Wow. I still do that. 
Yeah, but no, sports was not my thing. I, I was the kid who read all the time. I, wow. I was a reader, reader okay. and a writer. Yeah. So would you say you were shy as a kid? No, according to my first grade classmate, uh, Kit, she told me that I was bossy when I was a six-year-old, and that was probably true, uh, <laughs> but uh, that was at a class reunion, and I was trying to get everybody seated, and my response to that was, well, somebody had to be, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. but no, yeah, Sh- shyness is not a gene that ran in the family. Right, right. So, so okay, so you grew up in Frogville, you went to school your whole life there, um, high school, all all of the things right um yeah i went to i went to school at fort Towson. that that was oh. the that's where you came for the book yes. signing that it, that, that was is a booming school. metropolis by the way it is yes it is more booming than frogville uh <laughs> but yes but i attended fort Towson public schools for the entire 12 years so i'm one of those kids who rode the school bus every day uh, so i had to laugh sometime recently when the vice president commented about how everyone loved yellow school buses. She apparently never rode a yellow school bus. I still hate yellow school buses, but we rode Mm -hmm. those for 12 years and we were the last house in the school district. So we were picked up first every morning and let off last every afternoon. Oh, wow. Wow. So you had to get up a little earlier. Yeah. And I'm not a morning person. Never have been. Yeah. I am with you 1000%. <laughs> In fact, I, I tried, I, I, I'd shun morning people out of my life. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, so okay. <clears throat> so you went to school, high school, all of, all of the, the, the normal kid things, um, grew up on this ranch raising cattle and you had horses and all, all of that. Right. Right. Um, Did, so you ended up going to college after high school. Was, was that something that you always knew you were going to do is go to college? Our parents made it very clear from the time we could walk that we were going to college. So that that was not really a question. It was was sort of, you know, where am I going to go and how are we going to afford it? Because daddy was a railroad engineer and mama stayed at home and was the the home engineer. And they took care of the the cattle. Uh, That that was sort of their sideline. But um, that that was the real question. How was I going to go to school? Where was I going to go? Wow. So um, Jacqueline is on here. I not, now I understand the title yeah. of your book. Yeah. So and we're going to yeah. get into that, actually. But um, OK, so where did you go to college? Ohio State University? I went to co- <laughs> no, Southeastern <laughs> Oklahoma State University. Uh, oh. Reba McIntyre, Dennis Rodman, and I, I like to think, were you know, the, the three fabulous graduates there. Uh, wow. Reba was there before I was. Dennis was there, is a little younger than I am. So he was there when I was in college, but I didn't know him. I uh, just kind of knew who he was. But that, that's where I went to school. I, I managed to get a full-ride academic scholarship. So that that opened a lot of doors as you can well imagine. Yeah. 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 So, um, 
you went and what was your major year in undergrad? Oh, I was an English and speech double major. I was going to be completely unemployable if I didn't get into law school because I didn't oh, do an education degree. That, that's a college with a significant education program and they do an excellent job on it, but I never wanted to teach. So one of the few knockdown drag out fights my dad and I ever had he wanted me to get a teaching degree and it was like, I am never teaching. If I have to pick up beer cans on a beach, I am not going to teach. <laughs> but um, I, I had a high school principal my senior year of high school who was what I called an old used up lawyer. He didn't like practicing law, but he really liked teaching. And he got along well with kids, but he didn't get along well with either the administrators or the parents. So he went from little school to little school. And he happened to be at mine that particular year. And he taught a, a law class, the last uh, class of the day. And he had handpicked the students. And at the end of the first semester, he sat me down and said, okay, what are you going to do when you go to school? And I said, well, I'm going to be an executive secretary because my favorite aunt was a secretary. And that seemed to be what I needed to do. And he was like, no, 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 no. You're going to have a secretary. You're not going to be a secretary. So he suggested that I really ought to think about going to law school, which I had given no thought to. I knew I wasn't going to business school. I'm not math oriented. So that was probably not going to be my path in life but law right. school sounded okay so you know seemed like a good idea and it kind of worked out <laughs> I, I i don't think i've ever heard anybody sound so excited about the potential of being an executive secretary <laughs> I'm just... well you know i was a small town kid yeah, and sure. my 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 high school counselors favorite sister was an executive secretary for a petroleum company. And he thought that she just hung the moon and she was doing great things in Houston, running this executive's life. And wow. he thought I had the right skill set for that. And I probably did. I'd have probably yeah. been a terrible secretary uh, because I am bossy, but uh, that, that probably saved someone from, from having me as, as their executive assistant, but yeah. it seemed like a logical thing. You know, I could type, I could read, I could write. I was a girl. Uh, what else was I going to do? I didn't want to go to medical school. My hands shake. So nobody's going to yeah. let me close to them. And I get queasy at the thought of blood, much less the sight. So right. it wasn't going to be nursing or any of that sort of stuff. So secretary seemed like not a bad idea. Okay. Well, that, that, that's, that's a logical conclusion, I guess. So, so, <clears throat> okay. So you went to college, you ended up getting into law school. What law school did you attend? I, I went to Baylor in Waco. <clears throat> so I wanted to be a litigator. I had, one of the things I had done in college because I was on a full ride so I could take kind of any sort of classes that I wanted, I had convinced the debate coach to let me debate. I had seen a flyer in the hallway that said, um, essentially, uh, full ride scholarship, law school, Baylor, former debaters. It's like, hmm, well, 
maybe I could afford to go to law school if I could get a debate scholarship. I was not a debater. We didn't have a debate program at my high school. So I marched into the debate coach and said, I'd like to debate. To which he said, where did you go to school? And I told him and he said, I don't think you have a debate program. And I said, we don't have a debate program. And so he asked, why do you think you could debate? And I said, well, my roommate's a debater. My boyfriend's a debater. His best friend's a debater. It can't be that hard. (laughs) You know, I I think back on that. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. But to his credit, uh, he said, well, let me think about it. Uh, And I said, and I'm on full ride scholarship. I won't cost you anything because they had a budget and they could only have so many teams. Yeah. Uh, so he said, okay, why don't you come tonight? We're having a meeting and um, you can come to the debate meeting and see how it goes. And so that was the middle of my sophomore year, I guess. And I went to my first tournament, the second semester of my sophomore year. And oh my God, was I awful. Yeah. Um, really? Did survive. Did, oh yeah. Did survive the tournament, but uh, I'll never forget the first critique because in those days they critiqued you in the round at the end of the round. And the woman was a graduate assistant from the University of Arkansas, really nice woman, but she had the worst accent you have ever heard in your life. And it was uh, my team against a team from Louisiana Tech. Mr. Sklar and his partner, and I don't remember the woman's name, but I remember his name because he was both my first and last debate uh, opponent. Two years later, he was the opponent in my very last debate round. But at the end of that first debate, uh, this nice graduate assistant says, you women have the worst accents I've ever heard. So I thought, if she thinks I sound bad, I must sound like I crawled out from under a rock. So when I got back to school on Monday, I went to the elocution professor who I didn't have any classes with. And who, by the, the way, was what? terrible. The what professor? Elocu- the- elocution. How to speak well. Yeah. Dot Chapel. Oh. Famous for not really liking women, but he was really, really good to me. And I told him, I said, I apparently sound terrible. Can you help me? And he did. And two years later, and it was- I was winning awards and got a scholarship to go to law school. It was, it was what it, it was uh, your acts like Southern accent. Uh, Southern accent complicated by Oklahoma drawl. So that, <laughs> that is a very recognizable sound as you spend more time in Northeast Texas, you will come uh, to recognize local dialect. And I wow. have it in spades. That is so funny. Is that Allison's on here? Is that how you spell it? Elocution? That is it. Yes. He taught elocution classes. I didn't take one, but he he was kind enough to mentor me on the side. Yeah. So, so, um, So you improved your accent. You did you win like debates? Did you one 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 lots? We, by by the end of the second year, my partner and I were winning more than we were losing, and by the end of the second year, uh, my second partner, the first one got sick, 
And so I ended up with a second partner my senior year and we were winning all the tournaments, winning speaker wow. awards, winning, winning rounds. And it was on that basis that I applied for and got the Jaworski scholarship at Baylor. Not wow. understanding, of course, the statistical unlikelihood of doing that. But uh, I've always been willing to, to sort of throw myself out there and see what I, what I could apply for. And sometimes I've gotten in and sometimes I haven't. But the ones that I did get uh, were ones that were sort of life-changing for me. Were you at Baylor when Judge Starr was there? No, uh, he came... Uh, quite a bit later. I didn't meet him. He was the uh, the president at the time that I got admitted to the bar of the United States Supreme Court. He took a group of us to D.C. and wow. introduced us to the court and got us sworn in and everything. Uh, oh, okay. He was lovely. He was not quite what I expected. I'm he not is... sure what I expected, but he was not quite what I expected. He was a delight. He, he, well, he, as you know, he passed away, but what right. an amazing man he was. Um, so, so, okay. So you go to Baylor, you probably graduated number one in your class. I'm just going to get, no, not quite. I did. I did graduate at the top towards the top of the class, but alas, yeah. not number one. Yeah. <laughs> it was okay. I was so... just happy to get out. <laughs> So and, law school and, is not easy. No, I know. Well, and that's not even the hard part. <laughs> like that, it's not easy. But then you got to take the bar, <laughs> and I've heard that. Got to take the bar. I heard that. Oh, the bar be, is a beast. I've yeah, heard. it's a comprehensive essay exam over subjects you didn't study. So yeah, it it's a bit of a a beast. And was that you were taking the Texas or Oklahoma bar? Oklahoma? Did I you took go the, back? I, no, I, I took I took the Texas bar. Oh, okay. So you stayed in Texas. Yeah. I did. Okay. I practiced. Uh, I went to Fulbright and Jaworski in Houston when I okay. got out of law school, uh, and was there for a whopping eighteen months before going to a Fulbright spinoff that did products liability work which doesn't mean a whole lot probably to, to most people, but those are uh, products that break. So pharmaceuticals, uh, I did some uh, construction work, anything okay. that could break and potentially hurt someone, that's what that firm specialized in. And they represented the companies that made those products. Okay. So it, it was defense work. I've always done defense work. I've never done plaintiff's work or work on behalf of the individuals who have been injured or claim to be injured. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's just, that's crazy. Cause I I'm, well, you know, Sandra Spurgeon and she's like a sister yeah. to me and she was on the opposing side. Exactly. The other side. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, wow, that's insane. So you, how long did you work in these the this these firms uh i find i did a what i call my retoolment in 2020 so uh -huh. from 1987 when i got out of law school until 2020 i had a very active trial practice i had my own firm for 
almost 20 years. I worked in a couple of small firms. I worked in a big firm. I worked in a medium-sized firm. I was the managing partner for the Houston office of an 800 uh, lawyer law firm for a while. And that would have worked out really well, except my biggest, oldest client came to me after right at two years and said, really love you, but you've got to change firms. We don't like your firm. Like, okay. They sent me most of my work. So it's like, you know, I love you guys, but got to have some work. So uh, I I then moved to an Ohio-based firm and Mm. uh, was in their Houston office for five years before deciding it was real. I I had tried enough cases. Yeah. I was done. Wow. So then you, that's when you started your own firm? No, that the, my own firm was kind of in the middle. Um, I stayed, yeah, I went to Fulbright. I went to the spinoff. And then after I had been at the spinoff for a while, uh, I started doing asbestos defense litigation. So everyone's heard of asbestos litigation. Uh, You see all those ads on television. Uh, We represented the Manville Personal Injury Settlement Trust, which was what was left of of John's Manville after they came out of bankruptcy. And the partner that I was hired to work for had a midlife crisis and went to West Texas with the dog after about six months after I got there. And I was the only one who'd ever worked on the cases. So as a third year lawyer, I had like 10,000 cases I was responsible for and wasn't smart enough to know I didn't know what I was doing. So I just (laughs) did what needed to be done. And in the process of doing all of that, I got to know a former partner from the firm where I was working, uh, a guy by the name of Jim Powers, who's still a very good friend of mine. And after a, a hearing, I went up to him and said, you don't know me, but I think I work at your old firm. And he said, where do you work? And I told him, he said, that is my old firm. Why don't you come with us to the defense council meeting this afternoon, which I didn't realize was code for drinks at the Four Seasons Bar for a couple of hours after the hearing so that everybody could figure out who was going to do what. (laughs) And from that point on, I was the only associate who went to the defense council meeting after the weekly uh, hearing on the asbestos docket. And probably six or eight months after that, Jim asked me if I would be interested in coming to work at his new firm. And so I ended up doing that. And a couple of years later, he asked me if he want, if I wanted to leave that firm with him and open our own firm. And I thought about that for about 30 seconds and said, sure. Uh, wow. Of course, I didn't, I didn't have any money. Uh, I was a baby lawyer still paying off what's, school loans I had, sure. but he had clients and I did have good credit. So uh, we took his wow. clients and my credit card and opened a firm and uh, had the firm for right at 20 years. Once Texas passed tort reform, which did away with 80 to 90% of the work that we were doing, uh, then we needed to do something else. And that's when we moved to the and- 800 lawyer firm. For for the lay people watching like me, tort reform is the friv- frivolous lawsuit stuff. Is that what that is? It's or? frivolous lawsuit. It's actually a little bit broader than that. In Texas, they changed the law so that there were caps 
on recovery. So there were limits on oh. what somebody could get in a lawsuit. And they changed some of the standards of proof, making it harder for someone like Sandra Spurgeon uh, to prove their case. And many of those cases could be filed in other states. So the cases, by and large, migrated elsewhere. The cases that had been filed in Texas went to California, or they went to New York, or they went to Illinois. And unless you were uh, licensed in one of those other states, you couldn't necessarily follow them. I was lucky. I had clients uh, for whom I was on their national trial team. So while I wasn't still trying cases in Texas, I was still trying cases and I was trying them all over the United States. And that was great, but I couldn't take my 50 lawyers with me. So right. we went from 50 to eight and then we moved our eight to the 800 lawyer firm and I operated their Houston office for a while. Wow. That's insane. And especially 800 lawyer firm. I mean, I've, I know in Columbus, I remember I was, I was friends years and years and years ago with a, um, professor of, of law at, I want to say it was like Columbus state or if they have a law program, I, I don't even remember where he was, but he told me back then that Columbus, Ohio had, more attorneys per capita than any city in the United States. And, and that the average attorney made, I, this was back in 1990, probably um, the average attorney made somewhere in the vicinity back then of around $20,000 a year. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. No. I mean, it's crazy. Cause I, I, and I know a lot of attorneys and, and I'm like, my gosh, it's a, it's, it, you can starve. Like you can literally starve to death as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you, you can. And I think the last time I saw the average number for lawyers in the United States, the number was still something like 40 or $45,000. So there are a lot of people who make very, very little in the practice yeah. of law. That's the yeah. average. It's a tough profession. Yeah. That's the average. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so you were, I mean, obviously if you're the managing partner at an 800 attorney firm, you were probably making, um, and obviously you were good at what you did, or you wouldn't have been in that position as well. So, so talk about what it took and I, I, this may be difficult, but try to remove yourself from the, the, the title of attorney. What did it take for you to achieve those levels? You started this firm with a credit card, been there, done that, started a company on credit, ended a company with bad credit. Um, so, but, but, you know, like talk about what the steps that it took, the mindset it took for you to get to those levels. Well, I think the biggest thing is that you always just have to keep moving. Uh, I didn't have the luxury of not being successful. You know, my family was blue collar. Uh, I didn't come with a trust fund. 
So <laughs> I had gone to law school. I was going to have to make a living from it. So um, that, that was sort of my motivator and my mindset. And I studied really hard in law school. I didn't have a background in law because there weren't any lawyers in my family. So I didn't have sort of that inborn understanding of how the law worked and how the system worked. Right. And you, you just keep plowing through it. So I plowed through law school. Uh, I wanted to do trials. I thought that's really what I wanted to do. And at the first law firm, that really wasn't much of an option. As it turned out, I did not understand because I didn't have that background that big firms really don't try that many lawsuits. They manage cases and they take care of client business, and they do all that sort of thing. But baby lawyers don't get to go to trial in multi-million dollar cases. I mean, it makes uh, sense if you think about it, but it didn't yeah. make sense to me as a baby lawyer. I thought that's what I was going to be doing. And so when I moved to the second firm, the good thing about the Manville Trust Docket was that they had caps on what could be recovered, and they also had caps on the billing. So the partners lost money if they even thought about those cases. Um, and that gave me the ability to learn how to manage cases, manage people, and to try cases. I started going to trial. And I'm good in trial. I'm good with juries. I'm not intimidated by the process. And I sat down and would figure out, what do you have to do to win the case? Right. Because there's a theory for winning every case. You may not win them. You know, with juries, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And I tell people I've won cases I should have lost and I've lost cases I should have won. And anyone who's tried a lot of cases will tell you the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm always skeptical of lawyers who say, I never lost a case. Well, then you probably didn't go to trial very much or you were able to cherry pick the cases that you took so you knew exactly whether you're going to win or not. If you're the defendant, you don't have that luxury. So plaintiff plaintiff drives that train. Right. So, and you weren't, I'm assuming I, 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 maybe I shouldn't assume, but, um, you didn't work on a percentage of the settlement, right? Like, you, no. cause that, that you're on the other side. So That's you're, right. you're wow. So we were our hourly yeah. wage people. I mean, when you get yeah. right down to it, sure. uh, a buddy of mine from law school had an MIT undergraduate and I think in bioengineer, something, he's scary smart. Anyway, he sat down at the end of our first year of practice and uh, calculated what we actually made per hour as associates. Yeah. And let's just say that was not very encouraging. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, like, but that, that's the way the profession works. Sure. Uh, but to your question about how did I get from you know, start, starting to stopping, um, you just you have to persevere. Uh, it's something that uh, I heard Ramey talking about last night yeah. on the presentation that he did. But no matter what happened, I just I found another way to do it. You know, our biggest client, when we had the firm, our, our own firm, uh, Powers and Frost, Gemini, our only client, because they wouldn't let us really work for anyone else, went bankrupt. Uh, I was in the middle of trial. They filed for bankruptcy on a Sunday in the judge's uh, living room. Uh, yes, I'm still a little bitter about that. Wow. Uh, and I had to go to the courthouse 
tell the judge that uh, my client was bankrupt, so I was going home, and then go back and lay off everyone who worked for me because we didn't have any work for them. Uh, the rent was paid through the end of the month, and the computers were paid for. So we told all of them we would help them find jobs, which we did, and they could use our facilities as much as they wanted. Uh, but we were fortunate. We got a call uh the day after the bankruptcy from a potential new client who was going to come and interview us. And so I called all those people I had just laid off and said, here's the deal. If we get this work, we'll rehire you and I'll pay you for the time, but I don't have any money. So if you will come and sit at your desk, because you will be the people who are doing the work, uh, <laughs> We're all going to interview through this work. And if we get the work, we'll pay you. Uh, oh, and my God. So when the, the client got there, they sent four people from the East Coast to come down and interview us. <laughs> and uh, everybody was there. We had one person who had already taken a new job and couldn't be there. And we had one person who had taken a job, but she called in sick and came to sit with us instead. Wow. And we got hired. Wow. And we, we then, you know, moved forward with that work. I waited a couple of years to tell the guys that <laughs> none of the people they saw that day actually worked for me that day. That's so but, awesome, uh, though. But we needed the work, and we were people good for don't, the work. We, we were the right people. See, that that's so – it's so incredible to hear because from the – outside looking in you look like you've been you know never had a tough time in business and it's all been a, a walk in the park and, and, and because nobody sees it's like um you know uh, people say this i've heard grant cardone say it a lot of people talk about like i'm an overnight success that took 20 years to get there right so nobody knows about those little things. I've had that where it's like, hey, um, guys, we're not making payroll this week. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're not. I'll get you next week as soon as some people pay their bills, you know. So um, and you've been through that and not maybe not that exactly, but you've been through the the trials and tribulations and and you're the epitome of not giving up. Just keep pushing forward. You know, you just can't give up. Uh, there were a lot of people I knew when tort reform passed that simply gave up their practice. Mm. And there wow. were lots of reasons for that. Some of them didn't have the family flexibility that they could travel and things like that. But I had someone ask me how it was that I managed to survive that change because that was probably 10 years after the Pittsburgh Corning bankruptcy. Uh, but I don't have children. So that gave me flexibility that some others didn't have. And I was willing to travel. You know, I was parachute girl for quite some time. And in the law, what that means is you get the call on Thursday or Friday that a case is going to trial on Monday. You don't know anything about the case. Wow. You've not been involved in it. So you show up on you know, the weekend, meet with local counsel. They tell you what you need to know. And then you stand up on Monday and said, yes, Your Honor, I am ready to go. And you try that case. And there are a lot of people who wouldn't do that. But wow. I was an old debater. I was used to reading a file and figuring out what the highlights were. And I was trying a type of case that was similar to other ones that I'd done. 
So you just go and do it. And when the client calls and said, are you ready? Uh, can you be available? Will, will you go? The answer to all of those is always yes. And then you figure out how to do it. But if you don't have the, the background, you don't have a big bank account and you don't have the trust fund, you figure out ways to do that. You know, I'm sitting here thinking from a business owner, marketer perspective, I'm thinking, okay, if I was good at what you do, like it sounds like you are, um, some of these clients that are, I'll make up numbers. I'm just going to make them up. Let's say somebody's being sued for a hundred million dollars and they want me to represent them to beat this case, win this case for them. Um, I work hourly. However, when I win this case, there's a contingency bonus in place. Did, did you guys do any structure, anything like that ever? No, no. No, and in the defense world, that's really hard to do. Is it? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, there, there may be some companies that would be willing to do that, but the ones that we worked for, they they paid you by the hour. Now, they pay, sometimes they paid you generously. Sometimes yeah. they didn't. Yeah. Uh, the bigger issue was, were, was the company paying the bill or was an insurance company paying the bill? Right. And uh, insurers are more difficult to get your money out of. Uh, most of our work was direct corporate representation. Yeah. And the clients were good about paying. They didn't always pay quickly. So when you say you know, sometimes you couldn't meet payroll, you know, I took money out of my retirement account on more than one occasion to cover payroll. Yeah, and I got paid back when sure. uh, the funds came in. But those are, are not the things that you show to the outside. If you're going to be successful, you figure out a way to make it work yep. and you do it. You don't complain about it. Amen. I'm not a big eat, complainer. Eat peanut butter and jelly and until, until somebody pays the bill. <laughs> like, right. I, I can't, I've been there. Oh my gosh. So, so, um, and I hate peanut butter and jelly, but so, so, at some point, and I think you said it was 2020, you made a shift. You had a big life shift. Yeah. Talk about talk about that. I mean, we've kind of laid the the groundwork. You were obviously a very very successful, um, I would say probably passionate attorney, um, but you made a shift. Talk about that. I, I had always enjoyed doing trial work. And my trial professor in law school told us at one point, he said, you only have so many trials in you. You'll wake up one day and say, I'm done. And I thought, yeah, what does he know? Well, I woke up one morning and went, <laughs> I'm done. Uh, I had been living out of a suitcase. You know, I, I heard your interview with... Uh, Actually, I think I heard Allison Turner's interview with Craig Doeswald, and he talked about when he was working with Guns N' Roses and Air Supply, uh, he spent seven years on the road, living in a hotel, living out of a suitcase, and at the end of that, he decided, 
that's too much, that, that there's not any structure to that. I need to do something different. Imagine doing that for 30 years, which is what I did. And that my last trial was in Connecticut. It was really cold. I'm not a cold weather girl or a morning girl, but it was really right. cold. And because of the way that the flights hit, there was no way to go home. So I spent eight weeks in a hotel in Connecticut, can't go home, uh, challenging case, and great client, great team. But at the end of the case, I sat down and thought, I think Professor Muldrow was right. I've, mm. I'm done. I, I'm, not go I'm never going to go on the Supreme Court, nor would I want to, by the way. No interest in being a judge. Uh, but for what I do, I'm not really moving the needle. And it's been fun. It's been great time. I've made money. I've made wonderful friends. But it's time to do something different. While I'm still young enough and healthy enough to do something different. I'd, I'd always wanted to spend some more time at the ranch. I bought a ranch uh, in the late 90s and had built a house there in 2004. And we, we spent a little bit of time there, but not a lot. My parents were getting older. Uh, and it just seemed like it was time. And I was at the partners meeting at the Ohio firm. And uh, while they were arguing about something else, I actually read the partnership agreement for the first time and discovered that there was a clause in there. They're boilerplate. Nobody reads them. You just sign right. them. Uh, but, but there was a clause in it that once you turned 58, you could give them 30 days notice and they would give you your capital account, which is your investment in the firm, back and you could retire. So I plotted out the appropriate days and months and this and that and gave my notice and decided to go do something different. And so I had always done a lot of training for lawyers on marketing and business development, because the thing that sustained me through all of those years and all those difficulties was that I had clients of my own and mm. was able to make changes in what I was doing based on the ability to continue to do that work. It's the reason why right. I left the one firm because the client asked me to do so. Uh, and so I've always been very passionate, if that's the right description, about the importance of lawyers having their own business. And right. the legal profession doesn't train people to do that. We expect them to do that, but no one gets trained to do that. So I decided that I would take those materials I had put together over time and compile those into a book. And so I, I wrote my first book and then the publisher said, by the way, during COVID, the only thing that's selling is children's books. Ever thought about writing one of those? I was like, hmm, nope, I'll give it a try. So well, let's, uh, hold on. Let's talk about the first book first. Okay. Power at the it's table. a great book, yeah. right? And I've it read, a, I, I haven't personally read it yet. I, I bought it from you, but I haven't read it because I'm not an attorney. However, you've got some amazing reviews on this book. Yes. And I think you will find if you read it, that the advice is really neither gender nor profession specific, but every book needs a, a bucket to go into. So my logical one was women. And I did a lot of work with women in particular, because the legal yeah. profession does even less 
for female lawyers on business development than for men. But I took the materials and turned it into what I call a 12-step program for uh, lawyers looking to develop business and took the information I had learned uh, by trial and error over my time in the profession and compiled it into a system for people to use to develop their own business. And that differs from person to person, but, uh, but it requires thought and additional work. Wow. And some of the best reviews I've gotten have been men who are not lawyers. Right. Okay. Well, now I'm going to read it. And it's not a, you know, I, I, I hate picking up a book that's like that thick, like, I didn't want to read the Bible. I wanted to just read a, a book. <laughs> and it's so it's not a huge book. It it's it's a looks like a fairly easy to read book. So um I'll read it. I'll read it. You have my word. Yeah. Um, and it has worksheets. It's supposed to be a a working usable book. So it's not just awesome. that it's not too long. It it's designed yeah. so that you actually put pen to paper and give some thought to what you need to do on the various steps. That's awesome. So you, you pivoted out of being a lawyer to writing a book. And then you said your publisher said children's books are the only thing selling during the pandemic. And then you wrote a children's book. Let me give you full screen yes, so you can show yeah. everybody this. Here we go. Yeah. This is the second is the book. First? Uh, oh, that's, that's what I thought. Okay. This is, this is the second one. Yeah. The first one is Quest of a Frog. My protagonist okay. is a, a little girl who turns into a frog and then has to go on a quest to turn mm-hmm. back and to help save her community. Uh, the second book is, of course, the second leg of the quest. And then the third book is essentially finished. Uh, we plan to launch it on March 20th, which is International Frog Day. Uh, mm. And then I'm working on a couple of others. Uh, one with the Oklahoma Historical Society. It's going to be about a mule, Jimmy Lane the mule, who went to uh, the Civil War battlefields in Oklahoma. A real mule and actually real battlefields, and he was there. So that's mm. to co- coordinate with the 200th anniversary of the opening of the forts in Oklahoma, Fort Gibson and Fort Towson. Wow. So you're, you're, that's, what's amazing about you. You're, you're writing all kinds of different types of books. I mean, those go into many different buckets. (laughs) I mean, power at the table goes into, you know, one bucket, but then you have the kids books, the children's books, Talk about the um, storyline in Frogville. As you mentioned, you're from or live in Frogville, Oklahoma. Um, Why did you title your book the name of the town that you're in? Besides, it's a cool name. Well, it's a cool name. It's cute. Uh, It gives a tie-in. In connection with my business development efforts for both Fort Towson and Southeastern Oklahoma generally, anything that can be tagged to Oklahoma is helpful. And uh, it it was sort of a natural title usage. 
and it is cute. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, I met, uh, you know, and I always forget his name. He was Speaker of the House, the little guy from Bug Tussle. Uh, and I was in college at the time, and Carl Albert. Uh, I was in college at the time, and he suggested that I should tell everyone I ever met that I was from Frogville. He said, they won't remember your name. They never remember <laughs> my name, and I don't remember its name. So, you know, he was right about that. But he said, yeah. they'll always remember where you're from. So it's important to wow. have something that people remember. And that was some of the best advice that I got. And uh, wow. that seemed to be a good way to pay homage to, to where I was from. That's so awesome. What's the storyline in the book? Well, the first book. when first book, uh, when the children in Frogville turn 13, uh, they turn into a frog because the city is under a curse left by a wizard who wasn't very good at what he did, but the town wasn't very nice to him. So he uh, condemned them for, as it turned out, basically eternity, that uh, all of their children would turn into frogs and they had at to 13. get a royal kiss at 13, at midnight, the minute they turned 13. And wow. that had happened from the time that he said the curse until Lily and her brother Crocus, who are twins, turned 13. And Crocus, because he was the boy, it's always the boy who turns into the frog, was the one who yeah. was trained to go on the quest. Except when midnight came, Lily is the one who turned into the frog because she was the firstborn twin. So she um. then has to go on a quest to, to find a way to alleviate her frogness uh, and wow. potentially to save her city. And the, the theme of the book is friendship because it turns out that it is a friendship kiss that saves her. It, it is not a romantic kiss. So uh, it's important that children understand that friendship is important. And those are the wow. things that uh, sustain us and help us survive over time. So it's really a very traditional kind of fairy tale, very little yeah. political about it, but, uh, but it's about the themes of survival and perseverance. And my protagonist is a little girl. And if you think about wow. it, very few fairy tales have a female protagonist. You got a female victim, you got a female, yeah. lots of other things, but rarely the, the hero, hero, the heroine. That's so awesome. Wow. And then you wrote a follow-up book to that. The yes, second this book is the, the second series. stage because mm -hmm. uh, the girl who gave the kiss to save Lily got turned into a stone. So Lily has to go mm -hmm. on a second quest to find something to, to release her friend Cassie from uh, the curse, uh, the wow. second curse. And uh, mm -hmm. she meets a new friend along the way. And there's all those difficulties of being a teenage girl and getting along with people. So we work through that. And uh, then they are at the end of that book, they're ready to go on the third leg of the quest. And in that one, they reach their ultimate destination, find what they need to take care of their respective problems <clears throat> and wow. are, are ready to head back to Frogville.
That's so awesome. You know, I've, I've, um, interviewed, um, Jacqueline says the title intrigued me. I'm getting the book for me. Need a Shiro. Oh, Shiro. Shiro. I see what she did there. Um, so I always ask this question and you coming off of the thing fresh from last night with Ramey, um, may, may actually give you a leg up on, on, on what everybody else, how everybody else has answered this. The number one answer to this question is fear. So you have to do better than that. (laughs) The question is, what do you think holds people back from two things? Number one, real financial success. I've been poor and I've been wealthy and poor sucks. (laughs) I'm just, it just does. Wealthy is better. Um, what do you think stops people from achieving real financial success in life and happiness, freedom, like true, real freedom? What do you think holds people back from, from achieving those? I don't think it's a single thing. I think it's a collection of things. Some of it is fear, but it's fear of failure. And Mm -hmm. it's fear of what comes next. And there's that inherent concern that whatever you do is going to fail. And some things work and some things don't. Uh, You have to get up and do it again every day. And you have to be willing to let go of those things that don't work. There were things that I did in my career that just didn't work very well. and you have to give those up. You, you have to be willing to move on. And I think also people are concerned about what other people will think. Uh, it's like my classmate who thought I was bossy. I thought it was funny. She apologized later, but she really <laughs> didn't need to. But, right. um, but I think people are more concerned about how others will perceive them. And that holds people back. You, you have to figure out what it is you want to do, what you want to accomplish. And then in some ways, put blinders on and earplugs in and, yeah. and figure out how to go do it. Uh, I think it's those outside voices more than internal fear that stops a lot of people. And the final question I have for you, there was a time when Jill and I, started our first office. I had, I had been in business for almost two years when we met, she had been downsized from corporate America in 08, 09 during that whole mess. Um, and so she joined forces with me and, um, we opened an office And, um, I had one employee and then it quickly turned into four or five. And this one day I'm on the phone with a client, this big old dude that worked for me comes walking in. He's like, 
there's somebody looking in the windows of your SUV in the parking lot. And I'm like, well, kick his butt. What I mean, what do, you're bigger than me, dude. Do something about it. He's like, it, he has it blocked with his tow truck. And I'm like, oh, no. He's here to repo my car. <laughs> I'm like, I got to go. And, and so I go, and I don't know if you've ever had to do this, but trying to convince the repo man to not take your vehicle is impossible. It doesn't work. <laughs> and so, so um, I watched my car get towed away in front of all of my employees standing out in the parking lot at my office. And at that moment, I'll never forget it because I thought, what is the point of being here? What's the point of going on from this point forward? I, I was so humiliated. I was devastated. I was all of those things. And there are people that may watch this or listen to this that are at the end of their rope right now. They don't know which way to go. They don't know which way is up. What would you say to one of those people if they called you in that amount of emotional pain? <laughs> it's, it is traumatic. It is really traumatic. It really is. It's, and I know it's, I look back now and I'm like, that was just ego, whatever. But in the moment it sucks. So what would you say to somebody that's going through the crap right now? Maybe their electrics getting shut off or they're, you know, I mean, people are, there are people having a hard time in life. What would you say to them? Well, the first thing I would say to them is that life gets better. You're, you're going to survive. It's going to be ugly. You know, there, there was no worse feeling than when I had to go in and tell all those people, they didn't have a job. You know, what do you do? Yeah. Um, but you take a deep breath and you evaluate the things that you do have left. And then you start making calls and you talk to the people that you know are supporters. Don't call the people who are going to say, well, of course I knew you were going to fail. Um, <laughs> you want to talk to, because there are those. Uh, oh my God. Yes. Whole, you know, exactly. You know, I was just waiting for this day <laughs> because I knew this was going to happen to you. No, you want to call the people that are supportive and yeah. that have an understanding of what you've been doing and what you're capable of doing. And it will get better, but it won't get better if you don't do something. I suspect that you went the next day and you did go back to work, obviously. Yeah. And you worked and you figured out what you were going to do about a new car, a different car. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you do. You just have to slog through it. And yep. it does. It sucks. It's terrible. It's painful. Uh, it's embarrassing. It's all of those things. But you do, you just have to keep moving. And the fact that you keep moving will distinguish you from 98% of the rest of the world. Because yep. most people just give up at that point. They, they sit and say, yeah, I guess everybody was right. I knew that was going to happen to me. Well, no. It, it happens to people, but people recover. Yeah. And that's one of the interesting things about Ramey's book, which for those of you who don't know is, can you really, uh, 
think and grow rich, I think is the title. Can of you it. really? Yep. Can you really? Think yeah. 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 And it talks about the process of starting again. And the most important thing is you just have to start again. Um, yeah. You just have to get up and go again tomorrow because there will be a tomorrow. And uh, unless you just give up and give in, things will get better, but you have to do better and you have to work and you have to be practical about things. Uh, yeah. You know, I made money, but I didn't waste money. A friend of mine still makes fun of me because I never bought a really, really expensive sports car. I didn't need a really expensive sports car. I used that money to buy a ranch. Um, right. <laughs> and you know, that, that was a better use of my money. Uh, right. But you have, to make, you have to make choices and decisions in life, and you have to keep going. You can't just sit down and stop. Amen. You And you, I know in the last year... Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to pick any scabs, but I know you recently went through the loss of your father and, um, you know, you've been through life happens to all of us, you know, and, and I'm again, go ahead. No, it, life does. Yeah. And you have to find a way to find peace with the things that happen and figure out what you're going to do next. It may not be writing a children's book. It, it may be getting up and going to, to work tomorrow. Uh, but you have to figure out what's next. There's Because there's always something that's next. Yeah. You just have to yeah. figure out what that is. Yeah. And next may be good. Next may be terrible. But if it's terrible, then you figure out what's next after that. Because there will be something. What's that's next for you? Life. What's next for Sharla? Well, uh, Sharla is going to do a little bit of a rewrite on the Power at the Table book so that it is less gender and profession specific. So it stops scaring off potential readers. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to do a, a couple more children's books. I've got some outlined. And I would like to go back to doing training and speaking. I do some expert witness work, which is really fun. Uh, that's kind of a, a nice change to be on the other side of the table from what I always did. Uh, but I'll do some of that. I do some strategic consulting with lawyers, uh, both plaintiffs and defendants. So that's been fun. People send me stuff and say, look at this and tell me what you think. And so I look at it and tell them what I think. Sometimes they like it and sometimes they don't. Uh, but that's interesting. I'll continue to do a little bit of that. Yeah. And I want to do more speaking. I enjoy speaking and I like crowds and I'm not intimidated by strangers. You are a real life rock star. And I, I just... You know, I, I drove up to Oklahoma, which was just under two hours to, to where you live. Um, well, no, to where you were having a book signing. Um, right. And it's a, it is a really beautiful drive going up there, by the way, for those of you in North Texas that don't go up to Oklahoma. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, you are you're just I, I just love your energy. I love your energy. I love your story. I love your tenacity. That's I love that word, actually. Um, I, I just think you're you're an amazing lady. And I'm very, very grateful that you 
agreed to be a guest on my show. Thank you. Well, I appreciate all that. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. And thank you for having me as a guest on your show. Yeah. Wow, that was unbelievable. iPod good. ran away. Yeah. That was good timing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think the iPod said the uh, iPods are saying they're done. Yeah. Well, Sharla, thank you so much. And Renee is um, going to get your books. So that's awesome. Thank you. You will love yeah. it. Jacqueline is getting your books as well. You met, you know, Jacqueline. I do. Jacqueline's yeah. wonderful. She's amazing. Everybody make sure you go follow Sharla on social media everywhere. And there's a link to her biz card. Um, you can you can visit that from a mobile device. Um, and then you'll have a new website coming out very soon as well. So um, Sharla, you are amazing. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your heart and wisdom and story with everybody. And um, as you already know, if there's anything I can ever do for you, I'll, I'm a phone call away. So thank you. Thank you, Ken. And everybody make sure you go follow Sharla everywhere on social media because she is amazing. And we will see you all later. Thanks so much, Sharla. Bye, Ken. Bye-bye.